Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I'm here tonight with Phelan McDermott and Lee Simpson, who are co-directors of Improbable and are on tonight in the amazing Lost Without Words in this very space. Uh, I'm Caroline, who's been working with them on that project. So, hello. 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 Uh, first question, uh, could you tell me about the genesis of Lost Without Words, how it came to be? Why did you want to make this show? Uh, it, it sort of came from a... Uh, well, it came from a conversation that Lee and I had, mm -hmm. which came from... I'd just moved to uh, near Richmond, uh, St. Margaret's, and I was walking along the street, and outside a restaurant in St. Margaret's, there was a rather wonderful actor called Trevor Peacock, who I used to go and see when I was a kid at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, and I saw him do Waiting for Godot with Max Wall all those years ago. Uh, and I went, oh, it's Trevor Peacock. Oh, God, my hero. <laughs> and and uh, some of you may know him from, he was in The Vicar of Dibley as well. Had a, a, a long running part. I can't remember what the character was. Okay. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, Trevor. And he went, oh, how do I know you? How do I, know? I said, you don't. He said, no, no, I know you. I know you. <laughs> and I said, well, you must have been concentrating really hard because I was sitting on the front row at the Manchester Royal Exchange and I used to come and see you. And we had a little conversation and I talked about, I said to him, you're a bit, bit of a hero of mine as, a, as an actor. Mm -hmm. He said, oh, I, I don't go on a stage anymore. I couldn't do that. He said, I, 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 I wouldn't get past to be or... <laughs> and uh, we had a little discussion. And basically, he was saying that he didn't go on stage anymore uh, for various reasons, nerves, lines, all those sorts of things. Uh, and I kind of thought, oh, no, the idea that Trevor Peacock isn't on stage anymore was kind of sad. Mm. And I, went to I think we were rehearsing at the time. Uh, spoke to Lee and I said, look, at the moment, and it was happening a lot, there was stuff in the press about Michael Gambon and lines and this sort of thing. Mm. People weren't hearing about these wonderful older actors who weren't going on stage anymore. And I, was, we, I sort of joked to Lee, I said, look, if, this, if the script is an issue, we've been teaching people to improvise for 20 odd years. Mm. There is no script. You mm. don't need to remember any lines. You just go on stage and improvise. So it was a kind of joke. And then, of course, we realised that it was actually quite a good idea. And we started that thing where you have an idea and you start to talk it up. And then we actually had a conversation at our board where we suggested it. And Stephen Doldry, who's on our board, uh, said, oh, you could call it Lost Without Words. So Stephen Doldry provided the title. <laughs> and then we came and talked uh, uh, to the National here and talked to Rufus, and he got very excited by the idea and gave us some support to do a couple of workshops at the studio um, and cut to the point where you go, well, it's an improvised show if you, you know, you're going to learn how to do it. The only way you really ever learn how to do an improvised show is in front of a live audience. Mm. So that's what we're now doing. Great. And could you both tell me about your journey with improvisation, when you came across it as young artists and why it's become so important to you going forward? First. Uh, I was at school in Great Yarmouth by the sea <laughs> and my uh, English teacher read Impro by Keith Johnston. I think pretty much as it came out in 79. Um, and uh, as one other pupil said, Mr. Hewitt read Impro and it changed his life, so he set about changing ours. 
So he started doing, he just, we just read the book uh, and we just did the exercises. We met at lunchtimes and we just do the exercises out of the book. And in, a, in that really annoying way, we did like shows for the school and things like that. So we were incredibly, you know, Precocious. smackable. <laughs> uh, so that was, that was how I got started. Keith's book. Mm. And Phelan? Uh, well, uh, I went to Middlesex Poly, formed a, th a theatre company in 85 when I left. And at that time was just um, doing different workshops and things. So I, I, I worked with John Wright at Middlesex Poly uh, and uh, imp improvising was part of his teaching. And then I, um, I saw an advert in the back of the stage. It was a t literally a tiny little advert and it was for a workshop in, in Dorset, which Angelico had organised. Uh, and uh, it was a 10-day workshop with Keith Johnston. And uh, another version of that story, I went off and I spent 10 days doing work with Keith and it sort of changed my life, really. Or it changed my attitude to how you create and how you create work. Because mm -hmm. I'd spent a lot of time going, we'd make a show and it would take a year to make a show and then we'd go, oh, let's make another show. It'd take another year. And then I, through that workshop, I, after that, met Lee, because um, there was a bunch of people who wanted to find out what happened on the workshop. That's where I met Lee. Mm -hmm. And I discovered this world where people were performing above pubs and doing, not many people, but were doing impro gigs. And we made a show every night. And it, it sort of changed the attitude about perfection that I had and the kind of engineering attitude to how you make a show. Mm -hmm. And it became a much more playful process and mistakes and failure as things to be celebrated as part of a creative process in improvisation became part of my practice. Mm -hmm. Keith Johnston's obviously a very important person for both of you and for Impro at large. Um, Lee, you talked in rehearsals about um, Impro and censorship and you told oh, yes. a <laughs> nice <laughs> story about how Keith got around the Lord Chamberlain. Would you share that <coughs> with us? Yes, I mean, younger uh, people might not uh, understand that uh, until, was it 1967 or 1968? 68, yeah. yes. 1968, everything that appeared on the public stage in, in Britain had to, be, had to be sort of passed by the Lord Chamberlain. He had to read it all. Uh, and he would censor uh, uh, stuff, you know, for, for language or content or whatever. So improvisation was illegal. Right. Literally illegal. You were not allowed to go onto a stage where an audience had paid money and make it up. Hmm. Um, such was the state of freedom of speech in this great country of ours. And so when Keith, so Keith started all this in the kind of late 50s. He was at the, at the beginning of the Royal Court in 1956. He was, began as a play reader when the Royal Court was established in 1956 and very quickly became... Uh, one of the people leading the Royal Court, when there were three people leading the Royal Court in the late 50s, early 60s, and so on. Um, and he started a thing called the Writers' Group, which, with delicious irony, is what uh, improvisation in the UK came from, the Writers' Group. Uh, and it came from the Royal Court, the Writers' Theatre. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so when they started to perform, they weren't allowed to perform. So Keith would call them lecture demonstrations. Uh, and they were ed for education purposes. Yep. So Keith would direct or teach from the audience or from yep. the wings, 
and he would sort of uh, intervene and, and give notes uh, and give the actors directions. Yeah. And through that, and then would ask the audience questions and so on, and the audience would interact. And through that, they could sort of frame it as an education thing, but that was the only way they were illegally uh, allowed to do it. And that, that yeah. actually, what, what you were talking about that, we are basically, uh, mm. it's a tradition. So this show mm. is very much in that tradition of shows where the on-stage director yes. makes interventions, suggestions, suggestions for where the scenes might go and, and games and so on. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. So those of you that have seen the show will come tonight, you'll see that Phelan and Lee are actually on stage. We're in costume. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Blue palette. Um, and could you talk to me about what that tradition is then? Uh, uh, words such as side coaching have come up in rehearsals. Mm -hmm. Um, and whether you were expecting to be on stage and how it's been, that role has come about and how that feels. So side coaching is an American term, okay. which comes from Viola Spolin. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like this parallel histories of improvisation. There's a kind of UK history and, a, and an American history. And like, uh, well, like washing machines and remote controls for televisions, the Americans had it first. And that uh, came from a woman called Viola Spolin. So guess what? Improvisation, as we understand it in the modern world, is in, was invented by a woman, which is not often uh, talked about by the men yeah. who do improvisation. Yeah. And, uh, and her interest was, was actually... Uh, so the whole theatre games, the whole uh, theory of theatre games and the practice of theatre games as well came from Viola Spolin. Mm -hmm. She's an incredibly... She's an amazing woman. Uh, and her interest was working with immigrant children in Chicago, uh, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, I mean, a long time ago. Mm. Um, and she used theatre games to help them kind of integrate and to help their communication skills and to help their confidence and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and she invented hundreds, if not thousands, of, of theatre games, and she would s side coach. So when you read her book or her notes, uh, there's there's description of the, the game, how to play the game, and then examples of how to side coach. So she would be side coaching and instructing from the side. And then completely independently, because I don't think Keith was particularly aware of, of Viola when he started at the Royal Court. Uh, these lecture demonstrations, Keith would do exactly the same thing and still does to this day, given half the chance. Yeah. <laughs> Go to a Keith workshop and Keith is basically in the scene with you from out front, feeding things in. Um, and so those two great, I mean the two great kind of progenitors of this form, both in their own ways, uh, that's how they kind of communicate with their performers. That, and that tradition uh, that came from Viola Spolin led to her son, Paul Sills, forming a company called uh, Story Theatre, I think they were called. Close and they, they created a form called Story Theatre where they retold fairy tales, improvisation, mm -hmm. but also led into Second City. So there's a big tradition in America of improvisation being something that's quite in a way, quite highly valued because mm -hmm. a lot of those people became improvisational mm -hmm. uh, performers but then movie stars and well-known figures. So it's kind of... Th those two roots are quite interesting how, they, how they've kind of, in parallel, uh, kind of formed different kind of mm -hmm. lineages, I mm. suppose. Yeah. Well, let's talk about our amazing cast. Mm. Mm -hmm. So when you were searching for your cast, what was in your mind? Who did you... What qualities did you want to find in the performers? We wanted really good actors, and we were very clear that we wanted actors, not comedy performers or variety artists who had started to do a bit of acting. Because I think one might, 
naturally think, oh, well, let's find some people who've got a bit of improvisation in their background. Or So there are sort of, uh, you know, there are often um, comedians mm. or variety performers, when they get a bit older, actually often switch to acting and, and are brilliant at it. But our interest was maybe sort of kicked off by the Trevor Peacock thing. Our interest was very much, let's find people who are, who've spent their lives acting. And that was partly because it wasn't just, the genesis of the project was not just about finding a, bringing these actors back on stage, back to their home, but bringing to improvisation something that you don't often get in improvisation, which is really good acting. Mm. Um, because you just don't because it, the two disciplines are a little bit separated. Okay. So we were really interested in what people who had spent their lives giving life to other people's words would bring to the world of improvisation. But of course, because of the work that we've done and because of the generation that we are, we don't have particularly strong relationships with that part of theatre, because... Uh, um, you know, we sort of move, move about slowly in low light, waggling bits of paper and call it art right. sort of thing, yeah. rather than doing, you know... Plays. Plays. Top, yeah. So, um, Shakespeare. Shakespeare and Ibsen and all that, <laughs> yeah. and Chekhov and their stuff. Okay. So that's why we got... So being in touch with the National, that's really why we got in touch mm. with the National, because they do have those relationships. They know a few So writers. it was the National Theatre casting department here who were really fantastic, mm. who put us in touch with uh, people that they knew, who had, they had worked with, and then you were away. I was away, so Lee met people. I met actually. people, really, yeah. and just chatted to them. Yeah. Had a chat. Yeah. Just I had a chat. Generally, and I mean, you did it, so you may correct me, but generally our casting process is to try and scare people away. Mm. <laughs> Partly because, you know, even when we're doing plays, the way that we work involves improvisation. So we feel like we have to be, like, more honest than honest about how we work so yeah. that people really know what the score is. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a lot of uh, like communication about what it will really be, be like. So, no, no, yes, it really will be improvised. And it's interesting because a lot of the conversations were about, oh, will there be a theme that yeah. we'll improvise on? Right. Or will there be a... And we said, no, no, we'll just find out each night what the scenes are going to be. And we might throw things in, or, but we'll start from nothing. Wow. So where do you start teaching people who've never improvised before impro? Where did you start? We started it in exactly the same way as we start all our rehearsal processes, with the same improvisation exercises as if we were doing a Shakespeare play or an improvised piece or a devised piece. Um, so our, our starting place was exactly the same. Um, you give us an example of what that might be. So there's a there's a an exercise called word at a time, mm -hmm. um, which you may see tonight. We may do it tonight, and that goes like this: I am in this ship, which is sailing towards the horizon. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, and you'd go oh oh hang on a minute you were going to say an e a, a, a word with s, s can you try and say the first word that's there yeah. rather than substitute it for. Mm. A, what you might think might be a safer word. So what was the word that... Don't know. It was began with solar. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe. Solar. Yeah. Horizon. Solar horizon. Yeah. Um, and those games, they're interesting because they're, it's in, the impro games generally, they're all the same game. Yeah. And there are certain things that you try and teach about narrative, about trying to stay in the present, about trying to move the story into the present. 
that you begin to try and communicate. So you don't know what you're going to be improvising, but somehow from improvising again and again, and it's a practice and I still don't know how to do it, you, you learn how to navigate stories mm. or what might take a story into a kind of hotter area or what might make the action on stage more exciting. So you begin to teach those things. And you begin to teach things like, can you say, when someone says, have you got the bananas? Yes. You say yes. And generally, we will say no. And everybody who first learns how to improvise does this. We will tend to say no. And the answer is because that keeps us safer. But if you want to tell stories that take you into trouble, um, you say yes. And, and, and so those are the kind of guidelines that you begin with, which is the same with everybody. You mm -hmm. know. I was struck, Phelan, by something you said in rehearsals. You said that without impro, you're not sure that you'd still be making theatre. So what is it about impro that's kept you uh, here with us? <laughs> uh, well, th there's, there's lots of elements to that. I think I would say it's because on some level I know how to direct a show now. Yep. Uh, I still don't know how to improvise and I still don't know how to create an improvised show. So it's like research that's still alive for me mm -hmm. and still excites me. You know, mm. Just before coming out here, Lee and I were talking about how the show went last night, what we might, how, what helped, what didn't help, were we annoying on stage, was <laughs> this really help? And so it feels like an ongoing research question mm. that I thought would maybe last you know, a few years. And I'm still, I still get excited by it. Yes. And I still go, oh, God, what did we do last night? Oh, <laughs> why did we? You know, and I, so there's something exciting about something alive, that. Isn't it? it feels like live research. And then the other thing is that, that improvisation is this strange beast where the joys are amazingly high and the lows are kind of toe-curlingly painful. Mm. But... As an experience, as a live experience, it feels like something happened. And a lot of the time, I go to the theatre and I don't quite feel like anything happened. Uh, so there is this a perverse bit of me that gets excited by what theatre I think should be, which is a live mm -hmm. event. And I think that's what theatre does best mm -hmm. when it does it well, is to do a live event. If it tries to compete with television, cinema, it, it, it sort of uh, uh, doesn't do itself justice. Mm. What's really exciting about theatre is it is happening right now in this room mm. with these people. And improvisation can't ignore that. Mm. Or if it does, it's not... <laughs> that interesting okay <laughs> the themes and the uh, uh, quality of working with older players actors um, how has that differed from your work with younger casts is there is is there a different there's I mean it's, uh, quite predictably in a way there's in, in an improvisation, as Fadim says, it's a practice. And it's 
there are lots of metaphors and analogies and ways to describe it, but in some ways it's about getting out of your own way. You know, it's, it's that children don't really have a problem improvising. <laughs> Children tend to have less problem about saying yes, or if they say no, they say it with such ferocity and brilliance that it's sort of yes. And then something happens to us. Um, and one of the things that improvisation is is about kind of getting out of your own, your own way. So there's a, it's an unlearning process more than a learning process. Uh, it's a process about is it possible to notice your impulses um, and, uh, and follow them? to believe in them. So that again, that's an unlearning, mm. because the, the world that we live in is not a world that uh, rewards or supports noticing your impulses and following them, okay? <laughs> Quite the opposite. Mm. So it's an unlearning process. Now, so if, if you've lived in this world for longer, and if you've existed in a, making a certain type of theater for literally 60 years, 60 plus years for our cast, then the amount you've got to unlearn is greater. Um, you've spent longer and been more often in rehearsal rooms that operate a certain way and probably operate in a way that's not very like an improvisational rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the kind of I don't want to call them, but the kind of the challenges, the kind of edifice, mm -hmm. the edifice of, of, of what, you, what needs to be unlearned is steeper and craggier <coughs> and sort of disappears into the clouds. So it's really exciting mm. to kind of to bring, to take on those things and to bring those things in. And when, and Phelan talked about the highs being very high and the lows being very low. And I think with this company, I think that's been even more true. Right. I think for them, their discovery of this, and when they find a moment where it happens for them, their joy is, is huge. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of mm -hmm. bigger than if you're doing it with a bunch of 25-year-olds. At the same time, when they, they, hit, they keep hitting something and they can't get past it, their despair <laughs> and their, their frustration and the, it, the, the kind of impossibility of ever getting around it is, is greater. So... Mm. It's, it's been a, it's a really, it's a very rich and sort of um, tempestuous mm. relationship with it, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I mean, it takes you there. I mean, it, there's something, I would say something, there's a couple of other things. One is that there's been something very joyful about getting this group of elders together and getting them to say yes to something that's a crazy, stupid idea <laughs> at this point in their lives is very beautiful. Yeah. And so in this exercise of saying, say yes, say yes, I, I, at one point I reminded them all that they, they said a great big yes to the gig in the first place. So it's an extraordinary thing just to come on stage. Yeah. And one of the things that one tries to communicate to performers is that sometimes the best scenes are not when people are being clever with their words or being uh, sort of, you know, um, fireworks. It's simply when they turn up and are present. Now, that's true of 25-year-olds. Mm. But if this happens with this group of performers, 
it's like the 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 potential to go deep yeah. fast is very very exciting and present and has a beauty to it mm. um the thing about improvisation is that you can never guarantee that's going to happen but in this process already we have seen that happen at certain points and it's incredibly moving incredibly touching and there's something about that yes which mm. is incredibly life affirming mm -hmm. so one of the questions we had on our early leaflet before we did the show what kind of stories will people of this generation tell and actually the story is that they're coming on stage mm. at this time of their life having been in this traditional theater um and saying yes to that and that's the that is actually the story so whatever scenes happen whatever whether they're crazy madcap scenes like some of them were last night <laughs> or whether they're very simple atmospheric touching scenes they are in incredibly moving because of the sort of meta or underneath story that's happening there wonderful okay i'm going to end it there thank you so much everybody thank you Fayla and lee